Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. My name is Simon. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you. We're glad that you've joined us and you've come to worship with us through song, through prayer, through God's Word. Uh, I want to just take a quick second before we jump into the, the message today. Um, I've just been on my heart all week. I've been praying a lot this week and just been thinking about what's been going on. And the United States is tense right now. There's friction and there's tension. And I'll tell you this, the enemy wants nothing more for that tension to continue. The enemy wants us to be against each other. But here's the thing, as Christians, we have a hope. We have the message of Jesus Christ that we get to take forward. And at a time where there's so much disunity, we have the opportunity to bring the love of Christ to every conversation that we can. And so I would just say, as we move into times that are difficult and are hard, where there's going to be lots of emotions based around conversations, that we keep asking the Lord to give us the strength to be the hands and feet of Jesus as we move into those conversations so we can be a light and not put up walls. That would be my hope as we move into this time as we just want to do what God wants us to do. Um, Let me just pray real quick before we jump in. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your great sacrifice for us. And I thank you that you have called us to be on point and on purpose for your mission and your will, which is to take the name of your son to the nations so that lost people would come to know you and be found, that those that are spiritually dead would have spiritual life. Lord, we know that if left to our own devices, we will not be effective in being about your purpose, but only through your Holy Spirit that we can. So we ask that you would give us the ability to listen and hear the Holy Spirit, and that we could bring your love to a dark and broken world. I pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So we are continuing in our Conversations with Jesus series in where we are, and so it reminded me When I was growing up, so I was born in California, I have family in California, but we lived in Oregon for a while, so that meant that we had lots of road trips to go visit family as we were growing up. And we would come uh, once to twice a year, we'd make the long drive from Salem, Oregon, all the way down to San Jose, California. And there was one time that we came to California, and my parents surprised the family, and we got into the Volvo station wagon and slept in the back with the seats down, totally legal, Um, and we made our way to California, but it was a different part of California. We were in Southern California because they were taking us to Disneyland, and it was a magical moment as a third to fourth grader where I realized we are going to maybe what is true, the happiest place on earth. And I remember going on the rides for the first time, being in the ship that flies over Neverland with Peter Pan. I'm like, we're flying. This is happening. Look how small everything is. And I remember going on one of my favorite rides that does not exist anymore. Um, and I, I got to remember the name of it. It is... Uh, Adventures through inner space, maybe you remember that, maybe you don't, they shrink you and they look at you through a microscope. It's not there anymore. It's gone. But, and then, but my favorite was obviously Pirates of the Caribbean. Every young boy wanted to be a swashbuckler at that point. But I remember as we were finishing out the day and we were kind of like walking down Main Street and there's like a million things to see and everyone's excited like, this is great. And you're looking at stuff and and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I got to tell my brother or my mom or my dad about this cool thing that I saw. And you're like, hey, 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 <laughs> there's a problem here. No one I know is around me. And I remember I, 
all that excitement went to concern, which went to worry, which immediately went to panic and fear, because I realized I was lost at Disneyland. And I'm in the third, fourth grade. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I remember the words of someone said, if you ever get lost, just go back to your car and then we'll meet you there. That's a big parking lot. (laughs) And so I wandered out of Disneyland. I wandered into the parking lot of the Disneyland parking lot. And I'm just walking around going, where's the Volvo? Where's the Volvo? And I remember I got to a point where I'm not finding the car because, well, there's a thousand cars out there. And it hit me. I'm lost. I don't have any hope. I don't know what to do. I'm con- and I just started bawling. Just, and I remember going, this is it. I'm going to die, I guess. As a kid, that's all you think. And what ended up happening was this very kind older woman came up to me and said, are you lost, little boy? I went, <laughs> Couldn't even get the words out of my mouth. And so she takes me to a security guy, and then he's like, hey, where are your parents? I'm like, I don't know. Like, why would you ask me that dumb question? And he says, let's go to the, to the lobby of the Disneyland Hotel, because it was like right there at the time. So he walks me in there, and I walk in, and lo and behold, there are my parents, there are my friends' parents, there are the kids. And, you know, it would really make the story for the analogy and the sermon go really well if I said they were scouring all over looking for me. They didn't know I was lost. <laughs> like, I'm dying inside, and you're in the lobby having fun. <laughs> it killed me. But here's the thing. In that moment of being lost, I, I would have given anything in the world to be reconnected with my family. Any, you said, give me your favorite. It's yours. Take it. Whatever you want. My dog, you want my toys. I don't care. I want to be with my family. And when I walked in that lobby, though they, they, they would have looked for me if they would have known. It's okay. Like, they're good parents. Like, this peace rushed over me. And this calmness and this joy of like, I'm home. I'm safe. I'm where I belong. And like, it's scary. It all went away. We started playing again immediately because I was where I needed. I was connected to my family. And that's where we're going to find ourselves today as we go into this is that there is a man who is lost, who finds himself reconnected with his true family. And if you've been around the church, you've probably heard this story. You've probably sung the songs as you grew up in the church. But we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 19. Verses 1 through 10, and we're going to talk about a wee little man. A wee little man was he, Zacchaeus, who climbed up in the sycamore tree. That's who we're talking about today. That should load you up so you kind of know where we're going. I want to read this, I want to pray, and then I want to just jump into God's Word. It says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see Who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of all of, of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray and jump into it. Jesus, uh, I ask that you would give us eyes to see the way that you gave Zacchaeus eyes to see. I ask that you would open our hearts to areas where we may be trusting in things other than you for our hope and peace and salvation. Lord, where we need to be convicted, convict us. Where we need to be encouraged, encourage us. Where we need to stand in awe of who you are, may we do that. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me, that you would take away things that I don't need to say that are distractions. I ask that you would use me as a conduit for your grace and mercy to communicate what your Son has done on the cross. We love you. Pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Now, um, when I read the Bible, I want to kind of read it like a detective. That's how we should read the Bible. We've we got to be like Columbo. You don't have to wear a trench coat or smoke a cigar, but you want to be like Columbo. You want to be like Sherlock Holmes. You want to be understanding everything and anything that's in that passage because there's important to what's written. The Bible didn't just put words in there because it had to meet a quota of how many words per page needed to be there. Everything has a purpose, everything has a meaning, and you should start asking questions as you do that. Now, you need to know this. Here at Grace Hills Church, we love the Bible. We encourage you to study your Bible. It is the infallible Word of God that He has given to us so we would know Him, understand Him, and worship Him. And so we spend lots of time making sure that we are always in His Word. It's not Simon's opinions. I'm reading God's Word. We want God's ultimate authority in our life, and we encourage you to read it as well. But you've got to ask some questions. Why would Luke, in these 10 verses, why would he spend seven verses talking about all these things happening outside of the actual conversation, but then only spend three verses on the actual conversation that he has with Zacchaeus? Why would they point out that he was short in stature? I take great offense to that. Why would he do that? Why would they point out the kind of tree that he climbed up into? And how does this help us understand Jesus? How does this help us understand where we are today? Now, I'm going to try to answer a bunch. I'm not going to answer them all or else we'd be here all day. But I'm going to do the best that I can to answer some of these questions so you can see that these things are here so God would show us more of who he is and more of who we are in light of that. So Jericho is an interesting city. Maybe you know about Jericho. Um, it is actually the last stop before Jesus enters Jerusalem, before he's going to die for the sins of the world. So it's kind of like the last hurrah as he's going through about what he's doing. So there's importance there. But you may also remember that there is a story in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with that, about Jericho. You know, it's the Israelites go there, they march around the wall seven times, they shout and blow horns, the walls come down, and they take the land. That's Jericho. That's the land that we're talking about uh, in this story. And so what we see is that the Israelites were guaranteed to get this city if they trusted God and went out to take the land that was promised to them. Now, before that story takes place, there's this other thing that takes place before that. 
that they, the Israelites realized, how are we going to overtake this land? How are we going to get into the, the city of Jericho? And so what they did is they sent spies to go in and to kind of survey what was going on, see the walls, how big, fortification, how, how many troops they had. They were doing all this stuff there. And so when they were there, unfortunately, word got out that there were spies from the Israelites who were there, and so they had to hide. And during that process, there was a woman named Rahab who was a prostitute. And she saw them, and she hid them, and she covered for the spies so they wouldn't be found out. And through that process, they said that they would not, when they came to destroy the city, they would spare Rahab and her family. You can find those stories in Joshua chapter 2 with the spies and in Joshua chapter 6 when they actually take the city. And I encourage you, read through that. Look at those. See what God did there. But interestingly enough, we see that now God, Jesus, is walking through that city. And as he walks through that city, he's going to do something actually really similar to what happened before. Is that an unlikely person who had no righteousness in and of themselves that God was going to bring salvation to? And what we find in this story is that God's going to do the same thing again where he is going to take an unlikely person that by the standards of the world and religion that should not be saved and God is going to bring salvation to that particular individual. And this is where we meet our main character, Zacchaeus. And it tells us a few things about him that we need to know. It says that he's a chief tax collector, that he was rich, that he was short, and that he wanted to see Jesus. So we need to understand the tax collector part to know why that's a big deal. As a matter of fact, it says that he's a chief tax collector, which is the only time that that's used to describe a tax collector. So there's something different about Zacchaeus than all the other tax collectors. So uh, you need to understand this. Rome was a huge and powerful nation. And it takes one thing to make those nations continue. You know what it is? Money. We would never know anything about that. But it takes money to run those big areas. And so what ended up happening is that the Romans, like, we got to figure out how to collect our taxes from all these nations that we keep conquering and overtaking. So what they would do is they would sell tax rights off. And so they say, these are the taxes that we need to acquire. And we're going to sell those off, and those individuals will collect those taxes for us. And there's a couple reasons. One, they didn't have the manpower to do it. Two, they didn't know the areas that they had overtaken. They didn't know the people. They didn't know if the harvest was good. They didn't know if the crops were good. They didn't know um, how much money was coming through there. They didn't know who was the main players had the money. So what they would do is they would sell this off to people that lived in that area. They would buy that tax right, and then they would collect the taxes for Rome and give those to them. Now, that sounds all fine and dandy, but they also wanted to make money as well. So for them to do that, they had to upcharge the taxes. So now they're going to overcharge the taxes so they can do that. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey. Rome was an oppressor of the Jewish people. It had taken their land. They weren't able to worship freely. They weren't able to do what they felt that God had called them to do through his word. So they couldn't do what they wanted to do. They were taking advantage of the people. They were oppressing the people. They had made their lives worse in what it meant to follow and love God. And so now you've got these people that are of the same race, of the people there, that are now helping out the oppressors to fund the oppressors to allow them to keep oppressing your people. They were known as traitors of those people. They, they did not have friends. They did not have a lot of people that were excited about them because they were perpetuating the very thing that they wanted freedom from. 
It wasn't good. It was really bad. And so what you found is that they were despised, they were rejected. And here's the crazy part. All the money they had because they were rich, they had a lot of money. It really wasn't even their money. It was your money. So now they're living high on the hog on your money because they decided they just wanted a little bit extra so they could buy the fanciest camel of that day. That's where they were. And so this guy, we find, is not only a tax collector, he is the head or the chief of the tax collectors, which means that he's over all the other tax collectors, which means it's probably like a pyramid scheme. That everyone's got to pay that money up. So he's not just taking advantage of the marginalized, those that can't protect themselves, the citizens. He's also doing that with the tax collectors. He's the top dog, the top of the pyramid. And this is the man we meet. And it tells us that he wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see who Jesus was. You guys start asking, why would he want to see Jesus? It would appear that this man, everything was going pretty well. Lots of money. Lots of power, the, the greatest and best of everything. Well, why, why would he want to see, what need would he have for Jesus? Well, the reality is this, is this man was an outcast. He was rejected by society. The world had given up on him. You're a horrible individual. The world would be better if you just die. That was the mentality that they had of him. He knew how he got his money. He knew that he had taken advantage of others. He knew God's word. He was a Jewish man. He knew that God has a heart for the marginalized, for the orphans, for the widows, for those that can't care for themselves. And he is doing the very thing that the Bible speaks out over and over and over again all the time. It's taken a toll, not having friends, not having community. I mean, I think we got a small glimpse of it for about two years just recently, didn't we? Not being around people, not being around community, it was hard. We are dealing with the ramifications of the psychological problems that have been flowing from being in isolation. And this man was isolated. He was full of shame. He was full of regret. He was lost in a city full of people. And he had heard about this Jesus, this, this man that was forgiving sins, this man that was healing people. And he's going... Well, if we're talking about a guy who can forgive sins, I got a lot of sins. I got a lot of problems that I need to have dealt with. And uh, apparently, I can't do it on my own. He had realized that the thing that he chased after money, and he did it really well, by the way, it didn't fulfill. It didn't satisfy him. It didn't bring him the joy that he wanted. You talk with people that have a lot of money, and you tend to find more and more that it doesn't bring the joy, the fulfillment, the happiness that it promises and he's felt that. So he says, if I can just see this guy, why does he want to see him? Like, is that really going to solve his problem, seeing Jesus? Like, oh, I looked at you. There, it's better. It's almost like a sermon that we gave last week about the bronze serpent, about how it was called, if you only looked to the bronze serpent, you would be saved. If you only look towards Jesus, then you'll be saved. There is, a, there is something going on in his heart that he realizes that if I can see this Jesus, that by seeing him and acknowledging him as the Lord and Savior, that my sins could be, take, could be taken care of. But he had two problems, money and height. Now, it's not a sin to be short. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but money was his God. Money was the thing that he had put all of his hope into. And height was the thing that wasn't allowing him to see Jesus. Um, if you've ever been short in stature, uh, we all have at some point, so don't, don't get all great because you're tall. 
We've all been there. Mommy, daddy, put me on your shoulders. I can't see. If you go to concerts, if you go to parades and you're short, you see a lot of back of heads, backs, and butts. That's what you see. And you're like, that was great. You're like, no, it wasn't. There's nothing great about that event. And so Zacchaeus is in a situation where everyone is lining the streets. They all want to see Jesus. They all want to be, they want to be a part of what's going on. They want to get a glimpse of this man who's healing people. And he can't. His height has become a hindrance and a problem. So what does he do? Well, I guess, you know, nothing I could do. I guess I'll just walk away. No. He's like, I want to see Jesus. I need Jesus. So he finds a tree, finds a sycamore tree, and he climbs up into it. He, as he says, he runs and he climbs in it. Now, why is that significant? Here's the thing. In that culture, in that day, no respected, important man would ever run and certainly wouldn't climb a tree. That is what children do. That's what immaturity is based out of, that important people don't run because they're important. Kids climb trees. I'm no longer a kid. I'm a respected person in this culture, in this society. Important people, people run to important people. Important people don't run. And that's what he ends up doing. So he is rejecting everything about who he is as a person to say, I don't care what the world says. Jesus is more important, so I will run. I will make a fool of myself. I will make a spectacle of myself. The short guy in the tree, that's him. He's going to do that. And he says, maybe if I see him, he can help me. Maybe he can make my world different. Maybe he can take my brokenness and make me new. So he climbs up in the tree. He sees this Jesus coming. And it's crazy because Jesus sees him. I love this. Jesus sees him. And it's, it wasn't like, you, short guy, come on down. That's not what he said. What did he say? Zacchaeus. What does that tell us? He knows Zacchaeus' name. He knows who he is. That he's like, I know you. You know how I know you? I made you. I created you. I am the God of the universe. I knit you together in your mother's womb before anything. I know exactly who you are. I know every part of your life. I want to be, I, I know you're broken and I still want to know you. I want to have, I want to have dinner with you. I want to have a conversation with you and I want to have a relationship with you. You go, why are you so excited that he knows Zacchaeus' name? Because if he knows Zacchaeus' name, if he knows him in light of all of his brokenness and sin and shame and regret, that means he knows me too. That Jesus knows my name and that Jesus loves me and that Jesus wants to be in a relationship with me. Jesus cares about each and every one of the lives that he's created. He says, hurry up. Come on down. I love this. I must stay at your house. Why must? Because Jesus knew his life. He knew his brokenness. He knew that he needed to be saved. He knew that he needed to be saved more than Zacchaeus knew that he needed to be saved. And so this is what I, this is what I love. And, and I love and I hate this at the same time. I love that Jesus is like, I'm going to meet you where you are because I love you. And I hate that people think they've got to get their lives together before they go to Jesus. It's this thing that we believe that, oh, I, I, I got to get all my junk together. If I get all my junk together, I've had people tell me, well, I can't, I'll, I'll come to your church someday. I, I mean, I got to work some stuff out. Well, if you got to work some stuff out, there's really no need to come to church. If you can figure it out on your own, you don't need Jesus. 
Like, why would you, like, why would I come here? I got other things to do. It's, I can really do a lot of things on Sunday. I can do a lot of things on Wednesday night. I don't need to be in light. I, I got it all figured out. The whole point is that we can't figure it out. Living on our own, trying to figure it out, got ourselves in the actual problems that we're in and that we need someone else to get us out. If you're in a spot where you're like, if I could only get my life together, then I'd come to Christ, you're missing the point. He's saying you cannot get your stuff together. You're not going to be able to. And so it says that Zacchaeus, he hurries down and he receives him joyfully. Now, I'm not going to go through all the verses to support this next statement, but I want to tell you something. It's a common thread in the Bible to respond joyfully when you're brought close to God, when you're worshiping God or being saved. And I'm going to throw a bunch of verses up here that all talk about the idea of receiving God with joy, responding in joy, that is an overlapping theme in the Bible that is about him coming to God in some way, shape, or form. He was joyful. He had been saved. He had been welcomed by Jesus. That, that being asked to come to dinner was him saying, we are in relationship. We are connected again. Everyone else is like, how could God, how could Jesus love a man like this? And Jesus is like, I'm seeking you out. I'm going to find you. And it's a contrast to the rich young ruler, if you're looking at it. Now, we are going to be in Luke a bunch because there's a bunch of little sections in Luke and they're all kind of interconnected. Like these three chapters are all kind of just jammed together with the same kind of idea that Jesus is building out this idea. And what we see is there's a contrast. So the first one is you have a rich young ruler, very wealthy, right? Very religious. Jesus says, hey, you're lacking one thing. Sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and follow me. He identified the idol in his life. He identified the place where he had put more hope in stuff than Jesus. A morally neutral thing, money's not evil, it's morally neutral. It's what you do with it and what it does in your heart. And it says that he walked away sad because he had much money. But we have another rich man in Zacchaeus who is not righteous at all according to the law. And yet God pursues him also. And his response is extremely different, that he throws everything away when he realizes what it means to have salvation and sins forgiven. Hospitals are interesting. I don't like them because, well, you, when you go there, there's usually a problem. You don't go there like, hey, let's go celebrate at the hospital. That's not where you go to have a party. But we go to hospitals because who's in hospitals? Sick people. Who works there? And what's their role? To heal people, to help them not be sick. That's the whole point. And so if you understand that there is a sickness that is plaguing the world, which is called sin, that we need a doctor, we need a physician to come and help us. Matthew would put it this way, Matthew 9, uh, verse 12. But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... Go and learn what this means. I, des I desire mercy and not sacrifices. For I came to call, uh, to not to call the righteous, but sinners. And you're like, oh. So it makes sense that Jesus spends all his time with sinners. And you may be thinking, well, at least I'm healthy. It's tongue in cheek. The whole point is that everyone is sick and everyone needs a physician. Sin has ruined, for all have fallen sin short of the glory of God. Like all, like that's, that's, Everything. That's what that word means. And so he's saying, like, we're all sick. We all need Jesus. And these men and women in that moment, and to some extent us today, have no compartment for that kind of love. 
no kind of compartment for that kind of compassion. They thought it was unfair because at the end of the day, they truly believed that in some way it was their good works that made God pleased with them. Now, does God want you to live a righteous life? Of course. In response to Jesus saving you, not to earn that love. Like, I say this analogy a lot, but I I just say it because I think it makes sense, at least in my mind. Um, I don't buy Annette flowers so she'll love me. I buy flowers for my wife because I love her. It's subtle, but it's different. Like, those flowers aren't going to earn that love. Your righteous works aren't going to earn that love. God already loved you enough by sending His Son to die on the cross for you. He has loved you with the full extent of His love through His Son, Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died for you. We live in response to that as we have a new heart that we're transformed because of that. See, Zacchaeus would have been avoided by Jesus if that was the case. But yet he seeks him out, and yet he also seeks out the rich young ruler as well to show that he loves both. Now, I believe, and and many theologians believe as well, that Zacchaeus was saved before his feet hit the ground that had jumping out of that tree. He's like, I am saved. I I called out to Jesus. Jesus called back to me. He's in relation. He saved me. And what we see is what true repentance looks like in the life of Zacchaeus. When you've been saved, when you do that. And it says this in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, interesting, he doesn't call him Jesus here. What's he call him? Lord. Oh, that's different. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So what we see is that he is going to throw everything off that he had once put his hope in because it's worth nothing, because only being in relationship with Jesus is worth anything. His response is actually bigger than the law would have required. The law would have required that he would have given back one and a half times what he had um, falsely taken from somebody. Well, why would he say fourfold? Like, why would he do that? Because he had received such amazing grace, such abundant grace. Because he had, he had been in so much debt and been forgiven so much that he wanted to be generous like his Savior. He's like, I don't need this. All I need is Christ. And so I will give that away. He's making uh, restitution for people, but it's because he's been loved and he now has a new heart that's been transformed. See, his heart being transformed would cause him to, to, to be like the one that saved him. We're seeing a very fast transformation in his life because true repentance changes us. We don't live the same way. We throw off the old things and become a new thing. And what is Jesus' response? Well, there's a few areas that we see him respond in this. One, in case you didn't understand what just happened, he tells everyone around them, he has been saved. Today, salvation has come to this house. So in case you're missing it, everybody, he's a sinner, he's been forgiven, he has salvation now. That's what he's saying. So, and people would get really angry about that with Jesus. In Mark 2, 7, he actually has this whole thing. It says, uh, the Pharisees are talking about Jesus. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Everyone knew. Like, you don't, only one guy forgives sins. And here Jesus is forgiving sins, saying, yeah, I'm God. 
I forgive you. You have peace with me now. Welcome into the family. It's a powerful moment when you have freedom from the thing that holds you back. It's a powerful moment when you can let go of the thing that hinders you, that brings the guilt and the shame that you have. And I've talked with so many people, there's so much shame and so much guilt that exists in our lives, and Jesus died for that. It got nailed to the cross when you place your hope in his life. He threw those things off, his wealth, the greed, the love of money. He has a very different response than the rich young ruler. See, it's funny because in that story before, after the rich young ruler, we see that there's an interaction that Jesus has with his disciples in that moment. And it says this in, uh, there it is. in Luke 18, 24, Jesus seeing that he had become sad, the rich young ruler, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Is it impossible? It's pretty difficult. In man's power, it's difficult. It says, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Like they saw the magnitude of what he was saying. Like, well, then who can then? If, if this guy who does everything right is rich and it's difficult for him, then who can be? And this is really key what he says in verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. He's like, yeah, you're right. Trying to do it in your own is impossible. It will not happen. You will not be able to do that. But then what he shows us is that Jesus just did the impossible. Jesus bridged the gap that no one else could. A rich thief, insurrectionist, just entered the kingdom of God by the power of Jesus. There is hope for anyone who sins. And then he says this in verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. What does that mean? What is he saying that he is a son? Why, is he, why bringing up the Abraham thing? Like, what's going on there? Well, <clears throat> you kind of need to know Abraham to understand this statement because he was related to Abraham, you know. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons have father. I, a lot of church songs this morning, I'm realizing. There's just so many. And the walls came tumbling down. There's a lot. I got three today. So what we see is that Abraham was this guy that God chose out of nothing that he did. He was a part of a pagan culture that God called him and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to do this great thing. I'm going I'm to, through your bloodline, I'm going to save the entire world. Ultimately, that's what, the line that Jesus would come through. But what we see with Zacchaeus is that he was a son of Abraham by pedigree only. He just had a bloodline. That's all he really had. And so you ask, well, what made Abraham great? What made him this guy that we look towards? Well, it's really simple. The Bible would say over and over again that it was, it was his faith in God that made him great. But the word they would use is righteous. Right with God in right standing. And so he was a son of Abraham in faith now, not just pedigree. See, that says that, if you want to know where I'm, if I'm making this stuff up, in Genesis 15, 6, it says it right here, and he believed Abraham, the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. 
That's, that's what's going on. He's saying, this, this is what makes you right. Actually, there's a whole section of the Bible in Hebrews 11 where it, it's like the, the hall of faith. And it talks about all these people had all this faith in God and the righteousness that flowed from that. It wasn't about what they were doing per se. It was the fact that they had faith in God and that led them to action. And that's exactly what we see with Zacchaeus, that he had faith in God, which led him to action, to believe the decision that he loved and worshiped Jesus. See, as soon as he placed his life in the hands of Christ, he was saved and a true son of Abraham. By faith, it gave him righteousness. And then Jesus looks at the crowds that are going on and says this in verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Have you ever wondered, why did Jesus come? To seek and save the law. It tells us right there. That is what the text says. It's telling us why he plainly came. This was the purpose of Jesus. And here's the thing that I want to understand. Jesus gives us a new heart. He transforms us. And there's this thing where like, so we're lost and we were sought and he finds us as Christians. And so he comes and he finds us and he saves us. And then there's this, there's this new purpose in our life to where as we have a heart like Christ, we start to live and desire the same things that Christ wants. And that's exactly what he's doing in that moment. See, as, as we get to understand who Jesus is and what he's done in our life, as we read about his greatness and his mercy, we are becoming disciples of Christ. We are understanding the, more of the fullness of who God is, what he did with his son, and how he saved us. That then transforms us to then have the heart of Jesus and to go out the way that Jesus did. So as you think about what it means to be a Christian, you've got two things. You've got discipleship, growing in the knowledge and understanding of God to worship him more fully, which then cause you to go out in the world so others would hear that message as well. So discipleship and evangelism are always working together. They're not separate. They're always connected. They always work together. The more you understand God, the more it's going to transform your heart to go out into the world the same way that Jesus left heaven to come to earth to bring us the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what it does. And so why do I bring this up? Because I'm not going to read it, but in Luke 19, the very next verse is 11, and all the way to 27, it's the parable of the ten minas. Some have seen like, oh, the parable of the talons. That's the parable that then follows that area. Why is that important? Because what we see is the expectation that Jesus has for his people and what they should be doing. And the idea is this, that there was a ruler, a nobleman, who gave money to his servants and said, hey, take this money, invest it, I'm going to go on a journey and I'm going to come back at some point. And then the interaction is that the master comes back and he has an interaction. I've given you treasure. What have you done with it? It's not about treasure and good investments. It's not about Dave Ramsey. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is that the treasure that we have been given is salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. What will you do with the message that I've given you? And so as he talks to each of his servants, they come back. And those that have made more, he's like, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into, your, come into the blessing of your, of your master. Here's some more responsibility. And then he does it again. And then there's this other servant. He's like, well, I was afraid, and I took the talent. I stuck it in a rock, and I buried it. Here you go. And, and, and the master's not happy. He's not excited about, like, like what did you, you have this treasure. You, you, saw, you could have just gone to the bank and made interest. He says, you didn't do anything with it. And there's a rejection of him at that point. 
Like, I gave you, like, what are you doing? The whole idea is that we have this opportunity to share who we are in Jesus through what Jesus has done in our lives. If you've looked at this and what's been going on in this uh, series so far, Jesus is having interactions with people. It's centered around their salvation and what they truly worship. That's what it's centered around. That's what's happening in this moment. Like, Every, every one of these people had an interaction with Jesus, and it transformed them in some way. Every Christian has a story, and so does Zacchaeus. Every story is different. We say, oh, you have a good testimony. I have a bad. There's no good or bad. This, you have a testimony. And how God has decided to work in your life is how God has decided how to work in your life. And that is a beautiful and amazing thing. Some people, it, it's, it's kind of crazier than others. Some is more tame. They're all good because it's all God orchestrating how he's going to save his people. Now, last week I said, I really want to start having more testimonies. I think we need to share that. We're not a church that talks about the God who used to be. We talk about the God who is, the God who is still changing lives, the God who is still doing things in the lives of his people that he loves and cares for. So what I'm going to do is I want to hear a story about someone in our church and how their life was transformed. So John's going to come on up. And so John's going to come up. Uh, John and I spend a lot of time together. We've gotten to know each other quite a bit. And I was thinking, like, John, I would love for the church to hear your story. Come up and grab one of those mics. Um, you know, he's, he shared with me his story, and I just think it's great. Like, anytime we get to hear how God's working is fantastic. And so I don't want to... Steal the thunder. I don't, want to, I don't want to say anything. So I'm going to let you tell your story. I'm going to hop down. And then after that, we're going to go into a time of worship. All right. Thanks, Pastor Simon. Appreciate the opportunity to, to come and share a little bit about me and my family. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jonathan Varela. And uh, my lovely wife, Katie, who is up here singing. And uh, my three kids, Nate, Lucy, and Levi. And we've been at Grace Hills now a little over a year. And uh, the Lord has uh, led us here, and we've been very blessed by getting to know many of you and Pastor Simon and Annette and, and their family. And it's just been a blessing to, uh, to join this, this body of believers. And you know, when Pastor Simon asked me if I would come and share my testimony, uh, I think the first thing that goes through my mind is what he was just saying, which is, well, my testimony really isn't that exciting. You know, um, I was born to loving, godly parents who, at the time when I was born, I'm the oldest, uh, they were actually in training to become missionaries uh, with New Tribes Mission, and they were going to be tribal missionaries in Venezuela, and I came like that close to growing up in, in Venezuela in a tribe, and uh, that's a whole other story why that didn't happen, but I, en I ended up growing up in Oxnard, and uh, I... Uh, started thinking about what my family was like, right? And, and as Pastor Simon was saying, that the things that take place that lead to you coming to faith in Christ. I came to faith in Christ at a very early age. Uh, I probably wasn't older than five years old. And so that's not very exciting, right? But there's more to that story. And uh, as I think... I'm a history lover, and so as I think about history, right, I think about the history of my family. And uh, I've had an opportunity to go to some pretty neat historical places. Katie's parents live in central Virginia, and so we've, uh, we've gone to some historical places there. And one of the places that we got to go to was 
was Red Hill. Has anybody heard of Red Hill? Red Hill is Patrick Henry's estate, right? And Patrick Henry was give me liberty or give me death. And uh, this is what Patrick Henry wrote at the end of his, of his will to his family, okay? And this is how he summarizes it. He says, this is all the inheritance I give to my dear family. The religion of Christ will make them rich indeed. And so he's giving out his inheritance, and he summarizes it with, but you know what? Jesus Christ is really the inheritance, and it will make you rich indeed. And that's what I think about when I think about my testimony. I think about my, the history of my family. You see, I had three grandfathers. Yeah, not two. I had three. Uh, my mom's dad, Kenneth, and uh, my dad's dad, Ray, and there's me with my grandfather and my sisters there on the right. And my dad's stepdad, Omer. And there's my, my grandpa, Omer. You see, my grandpa, Kenneth, grew up in an unsaved home. He uh, was told to leave the house at 16 years old. Not because his dad was being mean, but because it was time for him to be a man. And so he went out and got a job. And then World War II started and he joined the Navy. And when he joined the Navy, he was given a Gideon's Serviceman New Testament. And he read this little New Testament, and he got saved. After the service, the Lord was leading, leading him to become a pastor. And so he actually uh, started pastoring, became a pastor for the rest of his life, uh, he pastored for over 40 years and uh, was in central Missouri and had a radio, uh, a radio show in central Missouri, was able to lead many people to the Lord through that. And so he left a legacy for me. And then there's my grandpa Ray, my dad's dad, Ray Varela. He was the fifth oldest child of 15. Yeah, my dad has 120 first cousins. And so, yeah, and so uh, he married my grandmother. They had three kids, and he left my grandmother when my dad was 12 years old. And I never really had a relationship with my Grandpa Ray. He was around. I knew who he was, but there was really no relationship there. Uh, my dad loved him and shared the gospel with him many, many times. He actually passed away about a year and a half ago. He was 92. He lived the longest out of all three of my grandfathers. Never, never, never did he believe in Jesus. And then there's my third grandfather, the grandfather that I grew up loving. This is my dad's stepdad. This is Omer. Omer Caps. Omer was from Tennessee, and he moved to California, and uh, he became a fuller brush man. Does anybody know what a fuller brush man is? Yeah, definitely I know it because he was my grandfather, but most people my age and younger don't know what that is. A fuller brush man was a door-to-door -door salesman, and they would go door-to-door -door and sell household goods and items and uh, knock on doors. That's what he did for a living. And guess whose door he knocked on? He knocked on my grandmother's door after my grandfather had left her. And yeah, they... They got married, and 
He was a Christian man who was involved in a Christian church there in Oxnard, an island community church. And he started taking my dad and my uncle and my aunt to church, and all three of them got saved because of my grandpa Omer. And there's a picture of my grandpa and my dad there on the left, uh, probably around eighth grade for my dad there. And so think about what has happened in your life to come to the point where you know the gospel. What has taken place? It's not about me. I don't have that great of a testimony. But what God did in these men's lives, what would have happened if my, if my grandpa Omer had never knocked on my grandmother's door? My dad probably never would have gotten saved. What would have happened if a Gideon hadn't had given my, my grandfather a Gideon's New Testament? My grandfather probably never would have gotten saved. He said at the time when he left the house at 16, he'd only been to church twice in his life. Right? And so these things that come together, think, I encourage you to think about that in your own life and in your own family. What has come together? What has been brought in place that has brought the gospel into your life and has changed your life because of the gospel? It's an amazing story. I look back and I thank the Lord for my family heritage, for this inheritance that he's given me, that I get to, Lord willing, pass on to my kids. Because two men made decisions, were brought to the Lord, made decisions that changed my family's life forever. So thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate being able to share. Uh, We'll close in prayer. And uh, I hope it was a little bit of a blessing to you to hear this. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're so thankful and grateful for your word, for the gospel that changes lives. Lord, it's evident in my life, and I know uh, it's evident in everybody's life here who's made a decision for for Jesus Christ and placed their faith in you. And we just pray, Lord, that we would be willing to share these testimonies and these acts of what you've done so that we can encourage others and that others might be brought to faith in you because of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.